Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Here's your host, General David Grange. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, the subject of our podcast is the wounded. We have a number of excellent guests. We're going to be talking about the situation that resulted not only from the recent wars, but in wars past. I'll turn it over to General Dave. General? Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, again, tonight's podcast, you know, the wounded are wounded if, as Americans. America's wounded. It's a big deal and very uh, emotional. To commanders, very emotional to any leaders of all ranks when their troops get hurt in the battlefield, WIA or KIA. Uh, and so, you know, what about wounded on the battlefield? What about wounded after the battle is over and uh, you return back to refit for your next mission? You're an FOB, whatever the case may be. Or if you've been wounded as a veteran going forward uh, in uniform or uh, in civilian life. How are you treated? How do you feel about things? Many questions I have myself, especially about my troops, was it worth it? Were those wounds necessary? Was it because of lack of training, lack of equipment, not being on point on the on the uh, task at hand, overwhelming odds, enemies' use of firepower, or unconventional techniques like IEDs, etc.? How about our medics? <clears throat> Faith in America's medical support. I would say, in my own view, that's the best in the world right now. Uh, if you compare it to, let's just go back as far as Gettysburg, and you know how that went at those times. Not only uh, wounded, but in those cases, you know, many people dying from diseases and stuff because of just knowledge and battlefield. Uh, but even the wounded in those days, and what was the, how were they treated compared to today? You know, I, it's a it's a morale booster. It's a confidence thing. You go into combat knowing that you have the world medical system and your support. That's a big deal. Many people fighting today. Now look at the National Resistance Force in Afghanistan right now, fighting the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, ISK, all the rest of those bad guys. And if they get hit, uh, they have a lack of medical support. It's tough. I'm just using this as an example of what's happening tonight somewhere else in the world. Uh, we don't have that problem in most cases. We're supported very well. You don't always be better. Of course you can. Uh, and, and then again, what is what is worse, getting wounded yourself, like I said earlier, or your troops getting hurt? How do you feel about that? Uh, and then again, the the, medic, the medical uh, capacity and capability that's available to you, or your inability to extract, trying to keep someone alive, like a Mogadishu, inside a building on a street where you can't extract. Uh, buddy aid. Uh, Squad medics, those kind of things, trying to keep people from bleeding out. Um, and, the, and the progress we've made in the military where I remember starting out, you depended totally on the platoon medic in an A-team, uh, on an A-team Delta, where today everybody gets medical training in most in most cases. Uh, you have buddy aid. Uh, you definitely have a squad of team medic. Um, and so medical training priorities really changed over the over the years. It's, it's up there pretty high right now. Because we care about our wounded. We care about our, our, our people getting hurt. The research and development effort in the military it is unbelievable. If you look at the SOCOM training at Fort Bragg, the uh, uh, college there, the institute, uh, it's it's first class. And, and And think about what medics do not only for our own troops, but for indig, indigenous personnel, where they operate in villages and mountaintops and valleys and different places, jungle, desert, tundra, whatever the case may be. As we call in Vietnam, the boxies. A boxy, the force multiplier medic does. Not only the confidence, again, of the soldiers that medic is with, but to the locals. What about Cana that get wounded? Look how close Look how close troopers get to their dogs. 
in combat, just like law enforcement, same thing, or other government agencies. In uh, one of our next shows, we're going to have on a canine inspector. And it may sound a little funny to you, think about how important that is. And how troops come to love that, that dog and their team. And uh, I know stories in Iraq where a particular one where the enemy in a three-story building killed the dog. And how that team, that, that tier one unit team, went up those stairs in a rage and killed everybody on the third floor because of that dog being hurt. Yeah. And so it's not just the, the troop, but it's those that support the troops like a dog. Uh, a, a dog that's uh, supporting that team. So tonight we're going to talk and hit on some of these points. And we're going to talk about, uh, probably in the next, the next show, we're going to talk about the medevac. Have some medevac pilots on. Uh, we're going to have uh, on the show some more docs, medics on the show, talk about their, from their perspective. But tonight, tonight's lineup is going to kick it off. And I want to thank everybody on the uh, program tonight, spending some time with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy We have with us tonight a, a number of excellent guests, two of which have been with us before, but our guest of honor, so to speak, the first time he's been with us, is a gentleman by the name of Dave Smith, a retired master sergeant who served in special forces in the third special forces group. And Dave, I'd like to turn it over to you to just give a brief background on yourself. Uh, Ranger Doug, thanks. And uh, General Grage, thank you as well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all tonight. Um, as you said, uh, Dave Smith, I, my background is uh, I spent about a little less, maybe about a third of my career in the 82nd Airborne Division. And the last two-thirds of my 23 years in the Army was, was with or in Special Forces. Uh, I was wounded twice, uh, both IEDs. The first time was in 2006 in Kandahar Province, Afghanistan. And the second time was in Helmand Province uh, in 2010, also in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I had the benefit, you know, it, it's arguable whether it's a, whether it's you know, a great thing or not, but, but I had the benefit of uh, spending a large chunk of my career with a lot of people and a lot of men that I considered better than me. So I was, you know, trying to, to live up to their, their standards. And at the same time, you know, when I first came in the Army in 1990, I came in and, and went straight over to Desert Storm. And I medically retired in 2013. So over the course of my 23 years, I got to see not just the military change quite a bit in, in our world, for that matter, um, and our place in it, but also to our topic that we're talking about, trauma medicine and, and how all those things work obviously uh, changed a lot over those 23 years. And for better or for worse, the lessons that we learned from Iraq and Afghanistan in post 9-11 
they saved a lot of American lives that that served to, to your background. You know, looking back at, at the Vietnam era, a lot of those service members would have would have died. And so um, I'm grateful that I was able to serve. I'm grateful for the people that I was able to serve with. And I'm obviously also grateful to the medics and, and the doctors and nurses at Walter Reed and, and 18 Deltas that they kept me and my buddies alive. So I'm happy to talk more about it at length. Thanks Thank you, that. Dave. That was, that was wonderful. I spent a good bit of time myself in third group and uh, wonderful to hear your story and we'll hear more of it. Thank you again. Rick Lamb, you came into third group and you were wounded when you came in. So tell us a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, I'm uh, Rick Lamb. Thanks for the invite. And uh, my name is Rick Lamb. I spent 26 years in uniform, about 12 additional years as a DOD civilian, and did four years of contracting. So, uh, so I've, I've been around the community for about 40 plus years. I got to serve in two of the three Ranger battalions for the five SF groups, and uh, got to participate in just about every special operation from Eagle Claw in 1980 to Iraqi freedom in 2003 and uh, I, I can tell you um, like uh, like Dave was saying it's it's uh, it's crazy the changes that we've seen over the years the uh, you know when I first came in as a ranger private I mean we uh, we were pretty good at the just the ABC's you know the uh, airways breathing you know um, heartbeat treat for shock you know sticks and rags setting setting fractures those types of things and that kind of gave way to the combat lifesaver you know, who got just a little bit more training, who could uh, who could do IVs, who could be under a poncho, he could have nods on and uh, and still get a stick. The uh you know, when I went to SF, I mean those medics are just incredible. I've never I've uh, never seen anything like them on the battlefield. I mean those guys, you know, from the live tissue training they do to to pulling teeth, it's uh the, the medics were incredible. So so on the teams, you know, you would do cross training and uh, that would get the guys to a to a good level, and you know sticks and rags, and uh, was was something that the uh, the guys did, uh, you know, constantly. But and that kind of gave way to you know, the the doc would make you your own individual first aid kit, and that kind of proliferated across you know whether you're in the Rangers or Special Forces. You know, they were carrying individual first aid kits. They had uh, mass trousers and. Uh, and, and they, they, they developed, you know, the, the care to where, you know, you, you roll over and you treat yourself first. A buddy crawls up, he gives the aid that he can. A combat lifesaver crawls up and gives the aid that he can before you even see a medic, you know, because the medic is busy. You know, in, in Somalia, there was, uh, I think we had about 75 rangers that were wounded. I mean, we, we took every able-bodied ranger off the wall, threw him in those convoys, and, and went out to the crash sites. And uh, by the time everybody hit the mash, you know, the, uh, the, the the small hospital there, they, they were just overwhelmed. And uh, but some of the some of the things that we learned, I mean, we we all listened to uh, to Ranger Smith, Corporal Smith. He died on the air um, as they were calling back. I mean, he was losing so much blood, and they just could. They had mass trousers. They they were trying to keep. Uh, they were trying to uh, to to stop the bleeding, uh, but they were unable to do that. But but that actually led to. Yeah, that, that's so like the uh, general Grange was talking about before. I mean, that that that's so influenced the commanders. You know, from just listen to that that kid die on air. Uh, but now they have transfusions, and uh, yeah, they can take the universal donors. They identify them in the Ranger squads, and, uh, and they can actually do battlefield transfusions, which is is just unreal. It was unthinkable back in that day, and uh, so those are those are some of the things that. Uh, that they were able to do that I've seen in my career, you know, from uh, from that little green book that fit in your cargo pocket, that uh, you know, the, the skill level one manual, all the way up to uh, to Rangers that can do blood transfusions under fire in theater. It's, it's amazing. Thank you, Rick. And now Colonel Edwin Andy Anderson. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm uh, I'm proud, honored, and humbled to be here once again. Uh, and um, I think the first time I was there. On Veterans Day, and here we are in, the, you know, in a new year. So, happy new year to all you great you warriors out there. And uh, as Dave Smith said, and I just echo that, same with Rick Lamb, I'm, I'm honored and humbled to walk in the same same formation with you guys. Uh, I'm a little older than you dudes. Uh, most people figured I was old when I got there. <laughs> I've had white hair since 
than I can remember. Even my wife, we've been married 46 years, and she says I was old when she met me in the sixth grade. But anyway, uh, not to be too, too coy and, and facetious, but, uh, 23 out of my 30 years was in SF. First met, uh, Ranger Doug there in fifth group in 1982, I guess it was, and was, was so fortunate to serve among some gallant men, and you know we could share names all night long. But uh, I was never wounded, uh, as Billy Waugh says, who still holds the record for the total number of uh, Purple Hearts. In fact, he's got a tag on the front of his car. Just saw him a couple of months ago. It says eight hits. He has <laughs> he has eight Purple Hearts. Uh, so I. Uh, Luckily, I don't have a Purple Heart. I did have some free trips to Walter Reed. I spent two weeks there back at the old Walter Reed. Uh, and then once I retired, I was fortunate to get involved with a great nonprofit that does wonderful things for our, our, our uh, Gold Star kids that are left behind and also does quite a bit for our, our wounded veterans within U.S. SOCON. That's called the Special Operations Warrior. Foundation. In fact, that's how I first met Dave Smith. I remember going to his room with his amazing wife in there who stayed in a chair for a year, I think, as Dave recovered from his multiple wounds. And so I'm humbled and, and uh, so thankful to have had a lot of trips to Walter Reed after I retired in 05 to visit a lot of our wounded. So uh, I have nothing but great respect and to say that uh, they, all those guys, are inspirational is a terrible understatement. And that goes from what we would say, and, you know, I wouldn't say this, that has fairly survivable wounds or quickly healing wounds to those that have completely life-altering wounds. Like a good friend I was just talking to yesterday was a triple amputee who lives outside of Fort Bragg. Has one arm, no legs, and uh, his one arm looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he swims a mile every other day. And if that's not the quintessential de- uh, definition of resiliency and positive mental attitude, I don't know what it is. So I'm humbled to even be here with you guys to talk about it. Wow. A great segment. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. I'm Ranger Doug, and I don't need an introduction. General Grange? Uh, yeah, so thanks, thanks, Ranger Doug and, uh, and Andy for your comments. I'd like to ask uh, Dave Smith a question on uh, his experience either time he was wounded, maybe both, on how he was, how he was extracted and his immediate uh, medical care uh, during those incidents. Hey, thank you, sir. Yeah, so... Um, both of my both of my injuries in 2006 and 2010 were IEDs. My first injury in 2006 in Kandahar Province was a, a vehicle IED. I was a driver, 
uh, in that in that incident, my my teams my uh, TC uh, was a gentleman by the name of Bill Brown. He was killed in that IED. Um, it threw me out, and my gunner that was in the hatch uh, threw him out. And and just to speak to the force of the explosion, we found out after the fact that it was a double stack uh, AT mine. Um, my gunner who was in the hatch. Um, the, the force of the explosion, he had his, uh, his ammo pouches on his chest, you know, on his body armor, and it blew all the springs and all the bullets out of his magazines that were in his, on, on his chest, and he was, he was sitting up in the hatch. It blew me out of the driver's seat, and unfortunately, my uh, TC bill, uh, it hit on his side because it, it was a pressure plate IED that hit on the right side tire. And it just sort of collapsed the A-frame and the B-frame of the Humbry around him, kind of blew him back into the vehicle. Um, so, so when that happened, you know, initially, as as is often the case, you know, when you talk to wounded people, it, it, there was there was absolute silence. It blew me on one side. There was a low hang, or about a three-foot wall next to the uh, road, the dirt road that we were traveling on, and a high, probably 15-foot wall on the other side. It picked up our, our GMB and and picked it up and moved it 45 degrees, so it was half on, half off the low wall. Blew me out into the uh, the field, blew my gunner back out into the road, and uh, and that's where we were. I expected the ambush to kick off because that was the uh, the enemy TTP at the time was to to initiate their ambush with an IED. So I remember everything for me was very, very deliberate because of the, the brain injury that I sustained. Obviously, I didn't realize that at the time. But when I came to, everything was very, very deliberate. Um, I figured, I realized at that point I'd had an IED. I figured I must have been missing a couple of legs. So I, I remember, you know, with my hands actually going up my, the front and back of my legs from my ankles up to my hips looking for blood, expecting my legs not to be there, and they were. Um, so I said, okay, my legs are still there. to be missing, you know, an arm. And it's just sort of strange. I grabbed, I like hugged myself and grabbed my shoulders and went down to, to my elbows, and both my arms were there. And then I realized, okay, well, my mouth hurts. I must be missing some teeth. And I kind of very deliberately ran my tongue over all my teeth, and my teeth were there. Um, so once I realized that I was still there, that's when, you know, mentally I sort of began to come back and I think, okay, well, this is when the ambush kicks in. So I laid down as flat as I possibly could, expecting the ambush to kick off, and it never did. And, you know, as things picked up, um, I heard the, the rest of my team working on Bill, and I tried to crawl around to Bill's side, to the passenger side of the vehicle, and I made it about to the front of the vehicle before it sort of dawned on me that, that I was injured and I wasn't going to be of much help. I was just going to get in the way. And so I stayed there and, and I, you know, could hear Bill, could hear the team working on him. And, and you know, guys came over to check on me. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Check on Bill. Because, I mean, I was. I was I was shaken, but I was okay. I had a broken nose and uh, jacked up my knees and my ankles where the shoved me out of the vehicle, but, but overall I was fine. Um, we had a medevac bird come in and uh, fortunately had a, uh, we thought we were going to need an extraction team to get Bill out of the vehicle, but we were, we were able to get him out. Uh, well, I say we, the rest of the team was able to get him out of the vehicle eventually. And uh, we got to Kennehart Airfield to the, uh, the medical hospital there. My battalion commander at the time was Don Bulldog, and uh, he carried myself and my uh, my gunner by the name of Zach Harrison and Bill off the helicopters, and we got checked out, and then that's when we got the word that Bill had been killed. I didn't know that he was dead because the, uh, the air crew was working on him the whole way back to CAF right next to me. I didn't realize he was dead. I thought he was unconscious. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, that's how that went. And our, and our medic, you know, that was when we first realized that we had some significant issues with some of the tourniquets because our medic was, was trying to put tourniquets on Bill's legs and they kept slipping off because of the blood. Um, so 
no matter what he did, as he began to torque down on them, they would just sort of slide off of his what was left of his legs. So that 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 required. We came out of that with two realizations: that one, the tourniquet design needed to be altered just a little bit to be able to compensate for for uh, large amounts of blood and things like that. But then we also realized, and, and what we got incorporated after that, were vehicle extraction kits, much like you find in uh, fire departments, rescue squads, things like that, because not everybody gets blown free from an IED. Some people, the vehicle that's happened to build just sort of collapses around them. And getting them out when you have, when, when, when about the best tool you have is a Gerber knife, just doesn't work so well. So from that, we got uh, the equivalent of jaws for life and saws and things like that that we could use in the future. My second IED in 2010 happened. It was on our fire base, actually. Um, all of our ASF had quit and, and gone over to the Taliban. So we were 12 dudes pulling security, pulling guard duty, um, conducting operations and doing our day-to-day jobs. I was a team sergeant at that time. And... Um, we had we, we heard a, a boom on our fire on our outer perimeter and went to go check it out, pulled up short, checked it out with the dog team, checked it out with the metal detector, cleared everything, found two suspected IEDs, blew them in place. And then we were up, you know, kind of occupying the site, checking through our optics and scopes to see where the uh, bad guys had went. Before we had gone out there, we had because we had dead space where our ASF had quit and defected, we had cameras covering a lot of that area because, you know, we had, we had a pretty large fire base and there was just 12 of us. So we had cameras covering a lot of the dead space. For where the explosion had happened, we knew where it was because there had been a camera there that had been completely dusted over. And as the rest of my team had I, was out on the trucks get, loading up, I was in the op center putting on my kit and saw which which camera was dusted over. And as the dust cleared, I could see two militants carrying off a third militant. So I knew that he had been putting in IEDs and had, had detonated one in the process. So as we got there and we occupied the site, uh, we identified a blood trail. And I was just splitting up my team into a uh, trail team, an overwatch team, to go follow the blood trail. And my 18 Fox at the time, uh, miraculously, I don't know how anybody else had not stepped on this this particular device. But he took one step when I when I you know assigned him to go pull, provide Overwatch. He took one step. He was standing right next to me and stepped on on a device that neither the dog team nor the metal detector had picked up. The difference with this one, ultimately, we found out after the fact, was that this one was a homemade explosive with car parts used for shrapnel inside it, whereas the first IED in 2006 was leftover Russian anti-tank mines. So they have gone through that ordinance in Afghanistan, and now they were using uh, HME. So uh, my ET Fox bark, it, it took both of his legs, uh, one above the knee and the second the second much higher up, closer to the hip. And uh, I ended up, I, I lost my arm. I, I really didn't know the significance of my injuries. I was conscious during the whole thing. I remember when the boom went off, the first thought I had was, oh, fuck, not again. And uh, I took two steps backwards and figured I should probably sit down. And so I just kind of sat. And I could hear everything going on around me and, and all those sorts of things. I was aware of the team working on me and the team working on Mark. And the only reason I knew, you know, the significance of my injuries or even what they were was when I felt the team put tourniquets on all four of my limbs. So I knew I must have injuries to all four of my limbs. I could also hear the small arms fire from where the the militants opened up on our position. So I could hear the hear the rounds impacting from that, and I could hear hear the RCCT guy calling in for uh, for TAS and also calling in for a medevac. And the medevac wouldn't come in until we cleared the LZ, and so they were sort of arguing back and forth trying to get him to come in. And I remember saying, "Just clear the fucking LZ." 
because I could hear everything. And when I said that, I could feel my, my, my lip and my mouth, my mouth sort of flapping. So that, so I knew then that I had, uh, uh, facial trauma and I wasn't able to see. I had my eyes closed, but I didn't know at the time that I had, uh, shrapnel injuries to my eyes either. So, um, after a little bit of back and forth, it was a British medevac bird that, you know, their equivalent of an MH-53 that came in and picked us up and evacuated both myself and my 18 Fox. I honestly credit um, my team with both my with the fact that both myself and Mark lived through that. My 18 Fox that we both lived through that. Being a team sergeant at the time and having been through, you know, an IED in 2006 prior. Uh, for me, two things were, were, were sacred to the training of a special forces team. One, everybody on the team had to be proficient at every weapon system that the team owned from, from the 81 millimeter mortar all the way down to your pistol. Because you could find yourself in a lot of bad situations and if you were proficient at all your weapon systems, you might be able to get yourself out. But the second thing was, um, advanced trauma training. Um, I've seen the benefit of that, and I knew that should something happen, if a medic just got injured, or if we had a mass casualty event, or anything like that, medical training was going to be the thing that was going to carry us through and allow us to see the next day. So, with only having one 18 Delta with us at the time, the 18 Delta was focused on the 18 Fox because he was more severely injured, and two or three of my other uh, team members, my guys, were working on me. And we, because of, you know, having, from my experience prior, understanding the importance of advanced medical training and trauma training, I had done the, the live tissue training and that sort of thing three times prior to that deployment with my team. And I credit that with them having the ability to both, you know, stop the bleeding, clear the airway, and, you know, as, as, uh, Sergeant Major Lamb said the ABCs, the airway breathing and circulation, keeping myself and, and my 18 Fox alive so that we could get onto Walter Reed and go through the next level of, of medical care. So that's sort of my experience with uh, the advancements and in, in, in medical training, where it's gone, where it started, where it's at now, and, and the absolute importance of it. Thank you. You do not want to miss what's coming. <laughs> We'll be right back. Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. We are changing the world one show at a time. No soldier left behind. We are here for you. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. 
888-344-4667. Welcome back, and here's your host, General Grange. Hey, Dave, great, great summary. Uh, just a couple comments on your stories. What's, what's significant that came out, I think, is the, the, the tourniquets and what people had back when and what, what's available now. Uh, just the, the type of tourniquets, ratchets, one-hand use, whatever the case may be. And the other rescue equipment, which really, if you think about it, the military should have probably learned a little bit more about that with the uh, increased use of vehicles in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, because the law enforcement has been doing that for a long time. And that's a significant point, I think. It can also identify with you somewhat, though I wasn't hurt as near as bad as you, but IED, we call it booby traps in those days. Uh, being knocked out and then waking it up and then just trying to figure out what the hell's going on and starting to touch yourself because you felt you couldn't feel something or or something felt weird. What's there? What's not? What's missing? You know, obviously. And then that experience of kind of floating, floating like until you realize and actually saying, I can't, I can't remember if I said what the F or what the hell, not again. <laughs> that was a gunfight, but I remember saying that exact same thing. Uh, that happened to be in Vietnam, but uh, that you said. Uh, it's kind of interesting uh, that, you, that you brought that up. Um, I want to real, Ranger Doug, I want to transition real quickly to Rick Lamb on something because I don't want to lose these couple thoughts. Because I, I really feel that the training we had in Vietnam on the medical side was really inadequate. And going out in the field uh, and not being able to be extracted, again, like <laughs> Because no road movement, it was all he, it was all helo, and and uh, keeping guys alive, not having a T triple C training, a trauma, any of those type of things at that time, very very basic, inadequate uh, compared to when I finished my service, the improvements. And and Rick, I'd like to talk to you about uh, just just I don't want to use my experience, I want to use yours, but the training. Let's just, in your case, let's start at Eagle Corps, the Doc Donovan training, which was probably better than most of the military. And then take it on up to when you, your last missions in Iraq, the training, medical devices, capabilities you had then. Just kind of, kind of compare the differences, if you would, for us. Yeah, you know, and, and I look back to fond memories on Doc Donovan, because that, uh, I mean, you know how switched on he was. But uh, everything that uh, you, you, I don't know if you remember the the little green you know skill level one. I mean everybody had that in their pocket, and obviously you knew how to do uh, the, the basics. But but the more advanced stuff. I mean, so what if the if the bleeding doesn't stop? You know, and, and, and we we had basically all the the things that you had in Vietnam. I mean, not much had changed there in Eagle Claw, but just the uh, the you know, using the um, the moveage kits, you know, bringing a little bit of realism to it. Actually, um, training and putting the, um, you know, putting casualty play into the exercises because you always, you always tend to train the stuff that you like that's easy. Um, but casualty play is hard. I mean, because you've got to stop and then nobody wants to stop. You can't slow down. You don't want to lose momentum. You got to, uh, you got to keep doing the mission. But, but up until you start putting in casualty play and taking out leaders and then forcing the younger kids to step up into a leadership position, the, uh, you know, it doesn't work. And I think that's what, uh, the beauty of what Doc, brought is that he uh, he taught just a little bit more you know from the basics he took us up to like an intermediate level and then forced us to actually play play casualties and uh so if you fast forward up to like uh, uh somalia the uh, you know doing the doing the train ups prior to uh prior to going over to uh, to somalia there at bragg i mean they they uh the same thing i mean they actually incorporated the uh the, the worst case scenario, they would, uh, you know, they would always have uh, a medevac. Uh, they actually brought in the jaws of life. Um, I don't know if you remember that uh, train up that we did uh, up at Aberdeen, but uh, you know where they had an old car and they they cut guys out of the car and then the uh, you know, the, the medics oh, yeah. the, uh, yeah. came up and and uh, I mean, I, the, the guy was so switched on because you know they had tires that were burning. I mean they they went realism. Uh, to the to the extreme, and uh, and I had to actually tell the guy. I thought he was actually going to crack me, and uh, <laughs> but it was uh, we were with the moveage kit. So just just the realism, and and I think because uh, that's that's kind of my biggest fear is that um, you know when when we lose this, because yeah, right now I mean Dave hit on it to where um, you know he he knew what to do in the second one because he had been trained in the first one. 
And uh, so when when the time passes and this we're in this peacetime mode and they start cutting the budget and uh, and and the, the veterans start you know start aging out and you got now new kids and you don't have that hard sergeant that's out there saying hey you know get your head out of your ass this is how we got to do it. It was one of, one of the things that that I think helped us um, was when you brought in Hal Moore. And uh, I, I remember, you know, from uh, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, that, I think that book had just come out. I remember you calling down to uh, the op shop there at 3rd Battalion and saying, Lamb, go to the uh, clothing sales and buy every copy of We Were Soldiers Once and Young because you wanted him, he being Hal Moore, to sign those books. And uh, I remember, you know, leafing through the back and, um, you know, seeing where they are today. And uh, we found that Basil Plumley, the Sergeant Major, you know, scary dude, had, uh, had retired at Fort Benning in Columbus. So we went to the phone book and cold called him and said, would you, would you like to come into this, uh, to this, um, NCOPD OPD at the officers club, if you remember right. I remember when they came in and they, the first question they asked was, who do we have here? And, uh, you know, we were all proud saying, well, we've got the, uh, the officers and the senior enlisted and we've got all the leaders. And they said, what are the men doing? Well, they're, they're, they're in local training. He said, well, if they're local, go get them. And remember, we, uh, we took a, we took a break to go get the rest of 3rd Battalion and all the younger kids out of, uh, out of, um, um, the, the regiment there. And, uh, and the first words out of their mouth was, uh, we wanted to talk to the young kids, you know, the E4s, the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the privates, because you will be taking the fight to the enemy. It's been our experience because your leaders are going to get shot. Your leaders are going to get killed. And uh, I tell you, that mindset, and then little did we know that we'd be in Mogadishu, you know, within the next few months, was, uh, and I think we, we, we've got to get to that. We, we as the veteran community uh, and the kids that are still in uniform, you know, have got to keep pushing, uh, just like just like Dave was saying, that uh, that this stuff is important. You know, your, your, gun, your gun play is important, but also this medical stuff is important. Uh, if I fast forward to, to, to Mogadishu, we, we didn't have armored vehicles. And uh, so yeah, we had open hummers. And I remember after the first couple of contacts, you know, we were getting three-quarter-inch plywood and stacking sandbags in between, you know, two pieces of three-quarter-inch plywood and, and, and using ratchet straps to build, you know, fighting walls on the uh, on the sides of those, uh, those cargo hummers. And, uh, yeah, we were using the Kevlar blankets out of the aircraft. And uh, you know, when when uh, when my vehicle got hit that night, I and mean, we we had actually lost that was our third truck. That uh, so as we'd take a convoy out, and we'd come back. I mean, there was holes in the radiator, holes in the tires, so you'd get a new truck. And uh, you know, the, the last truck that we went out, we were hoping to get one of the armored vehicles from the Malaysians, but we ended up again with an open open Hummer. And uh, it in our ambush, it was you know, but it was all small arms fire. Thank God, you know, there was no uh, they hadn't progressed to. To the IEDs at the time, but you know, Easterbrook got hit at one intersection, and he came out. I swapped. Uh, you know, we did the dead driver drill and swapped uh, swapped drivers. So as I'm driving, um, and, and you know, calling in the sit rep and, and bandaging, bandaging his hand, you know, I get nailed the next uh, the next intersection back or the next intersection forward. And uh, you know, the problem that we had was that um, you know, we couldn't get anybody out. The only way that you could get out was by ground. And uh, you know, so we had to continue to move. Uh, you know, we had to triage, treat on the spot. Um, I think the last thing, you know, I didn't do the Mogadishu mile. I, I, I was lucky I did the Mogadishu half mile. Because by the time we had thermited our truck and we're, we're running, you know, some, uh, some, some kind kids from 10th Mountain got us in the back of one of their cargo hummers. And uh, you know, by the time we got to the stadium, it was, uh, it was air exfil out of the stadium to the NASH. But even getting to the mash, uh, yeah, I was I was a head wound, so I was one of the one of the first guys medevaced out. But by the time I got there, you know, I was at the one end of the tent and next guy in. But so many kids were coming in that were just uh, I mean they were filleted open. They were uh, they were they were they were some more serious wounds than mine. So now I go from the from the next guy into the into the, the room all the way to the end of the tent and uh, got frustrated, cleaned my face off and. Uh, you know, went back to the airstrip. You know, got all my got all my gear and went back and went to sleep because I had guard duty at two. And it wasn't until Doc Marsh about two days later pulled me out and said, "Hey, you're in the gray wall from the hospital. You got to go back, go back to the hospital and get a uh, 
get a CAT scan. But um, and even that, I, I mean, I, I got good care. The uh, although there, there probably just wasn't enough of it, if that makes sense. You know, not not for the amount of wounded that we had on the ground. Oh, it really does. Just Rick, a couple couple points real quick. On wrapping up on, on your story is that uh, uh, you know if you think about in a fight uh, going into combat, I mean you know it's obviously the shooting, right? The weapon, the ammo. And then you got two other things, pretty much everybody's carrying around. Uh, and when I talk about ammo, it's not just for your individual weapon; it may be for crew serve weapons, mortars, whatever that you're humping. But you're also carrying two other really key things. It's probably batteries for radios. If you're not True. carrying radio stuff, and it's medical equipment, IV band, you know, other stuff for the, for for trauma, and then, and that's the child, the health child. You need water, you need those other three things, right, to to go into a fight. And uh, uh, I mean, really, 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 really key. I think that uh, every time we're in these kind of fights. Uh, one uh, stuff always improves. What type of ammo you use, uh, radios you use, uh, tactics, techniques, procedures, uh, but you also have an improvement in some way or form in medical equipment. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the type of training you need. When we get back to Bragg, we get back to Benning, wherever we're going, but wherever you're going back to, by gosh, in the next training cycle, we're going to start training like this on the medical side. It's very important. And my last question is going to go to Andy Anderson before I turn it back over to Ranger Doug. And that has to do, and some of uh, Dave mentioned it, Rick Lamb mentioned it, Andy being a commander and being in the, in the units as long as you have. Uh, a couple people mentioned some of the training. The take. I remember doing it in fifth group uh, a little bit, definitely in uh, Delta in the unit, uh, the training, medical training we got. I'm talking about every member, but because a smaller units, you can do that. Uh, the docs, the medics had even better training, but you know, uh, uh, goat lab, you know, when you're going, you're training on goats doing chest tubes, tricks, cut down IVs, stuff that, uh, in most units, you don't get the opportunity to do that. And even medics a lot of times didn't have the opportunity to do some of that stuff. But uh, give us a little bit, Andy, if you would, on the training necessity experience, let's say in Special Forces as an example, uh, that your units went through and how important it is. Uh, okay, sir, I can do that, but if you don't mind, I'll, I'll segue and get off on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, sure. I was in fifth group and third group for operational units, but I ended up having the opportunity to spend a lot of time in SWIC, Special Warfare Center in School. And as I used to tell guys there, nobody joins SF to go to SWIC. You know, everybody wants to be at the tip of the spear, want to be on an A-team. We all got it, understand it. But you got to do your time there. And if you got to come into the schoolhouse with a good attitude, if not, you're doing a terrible disservice to the regiment. So we came up with a motto is where the brotherhood begins. And um, one of the key, probably... The things that, uh, that, well, a part of all of that multi-headed hydra called SWIC, uh, was the SWAT TB, as we called it at the time, Special Operations Medical Training <coughs> Battalion. Uh, I was the training group commander and I was fortunate enough we had five, uh, well, we had four battalions at the time. One was the medical training. And the SWAT TB was, we had a Actually, it's called the JSOC TB because the joint, we just had the J in front of it. But all of our instructors were SF guys. And so we, you know, the primary thing, the long pole in the tent was 18 deltas. And then we got other kind of different elements and we would train the, the ranger medics and the SEAL medics or the, the corpsman, the Navy corpsman for the SEALs just before we had MARSOC. And we would, we would also train all the uh, CCT and the, and the PJs in all their medical training. So it was literally state-of-the-art medical training. And But it was a constant battle to, to fight everything from PETA, uh, people for the ethical, ethical treatment of animals, uh, 
to, for us to be able to conduct a live tissue training and to be in compliance with all the bureaucratic protocols that had to be, we had to be in compliance with. And, um, even though I'm retired, I, I'm fortunate to be able to get back there quite often and I, I know a lot of those guys and the guy that's running it right now is an MD, 06, SF qualified, been in the Ranger Regiment, been in the agency, come back, got his MD, I mean, how many tabs can one guy have on a set of fatigues? But anyway, he is the commander now of the Special Operations Training, I mean, Special Operations and Medical Training Group. It's its own group now. And they literally have the best of the best from retired former 18 Deltas, guys coming in from all different disciplines. And I can tell you, you know, we all think, you know, we were in the last hard class and everything got easy after we left and all that BS. But I'm telling you, the medical training they got there now is state-of-the-art, second to none. The guys that are running it are focused just like you guys are. And uh, I I guess I'll put this out to our audience is, you know, don't be concerned about Slipping standards, um, at least, it, and well, it's, it's a lot of, lot of crap that gets thrown up against the wall about SWIC and slipping standards and toxic environments and all this stuff. But I'm telling you, I, I still, every time I go back there, I go visit Command Sergeant Major Retired Dave Clark. He's 91 years old, still working every day at Fort Bragg in his office at Bryant Hall. And, um, he'll tell you, it's never been better. So take that and put it in your in your coffee cup and swirl it around and, you know, have a good swig that, you know, things that the baby's not been thrown out with the bath water in the medical training arena. I'll just say one thing about from the operational units, and God bless him, we all know him. Frank Tony was our battalion commander, uh, and it's been a lot of time to Ranger Regiment. Dave and you and he were, were cohorts. Uh yeah, I'm right. He made medical training and cross training a a a, uh, a high priority, um, and he gets a lot of you know kind of throw off on about five, five, six, seven, six, two, all that. But that's that's kind of folklore mythology. We were into language. We were into indigenous uh, communications. We were into through written by the indig, unconventional warfare, and being able to operate. Alone and afraid, unafraid, excuse me, out there, tip of the spear, when you just got an 18, and you better damn sure make sure everybody on that 12 man team has done a hell of a lot of cross training with those two 18 deltas. And if we were, if we were lucky enough without, you know, in semi peacetime to sending teams that, you know, these what have been called shithole countries, but <laughs> out there on the edge, you know, we would we would end up, which wasn't was not unusual. We'd end up having to pull a medic from another team, attaching to a team because we didn't have two of them there. Um, so we wanted to send a team out, or J said, or wherever to a to a third world country, where those two medics were going to be the most important two guys on that team. And he wanted to make damn sure that the rest of the team was cross trained. So. Uh, I think most battalion commanders get it. Uh, I know all you guys on this group certainly do. And one other thing I'd like to say is that there are great organizations out there. Dave Smith is part of one right now called uh, Warrior Ethos. I was fortunate enough to be on the board of one for 14 years. I've already mentioned that. Special Operations Warrior Foundation that does a lot to support our veterans, but specifically our wounded in action. And not just visible wounds, but those invisible wounds. And I'll shut up and I'll pass the mic back. Yeah, well, thanks, Andy. Thanks for that. It's a great rundown, and you're absolutely right. And 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 I'll tell you what. Thank goodness for leaders that have commander priorities like Frank Tony that make a difference to keep our GIs alive as they slay the enemy. I'm going to turn to Ranger Doug. I'm going to turn it over to you for some comments, and then I'm going to do a closeout. Go ahead, Ranger Doug. Roger, well, i got to say that every day that I go to work, I get confined to the things I have to do, and sometimes my focus gets pretty narrow. But when I hear the 
things I've heard tonight, it makes me glad that I chose a particular profession. I uh, can only say that I'm awed by the stories that that you, General, that Rick and Dave have told us tonight because to be wounded is different than being injured. An enemy has taken action. You volunteered to go where you went. Uh, you possibly thought about it, but you never really know what happens until it happens. We can train like crazy for most things, but I don't think anybody adequately understands what it's like to take a serious wound. So my hat's off to you, as I'm sure our audience's hats are off as well. I'm just very fortunate to be able to do this, and uh, I want to thank you all for the things that you've said. We will cover some more things. We have more to talk about, such as the care that you get once you leave the battlefield environment. You're out of those close-in hospitals at golden hour. And uh, by the way, can we sustain the golden hour in what we call large-scale combat now? What happens then when you reach uh, the continental United States or any other large hospital? How do you integrate and move through that? And then what do the veterans organizations do, such as VA and others, the veteran services organizations and so forth? We can talk about that in a future program. So, General, I don't think this needs much of a summary. I think this was uh, really hard-hitting information that uh, the public needs to understand. And again, our main target is veterans and then service people and then our citizens. General, over to you. Thanks, Major Doug, and I totally agree. All right, Nick, we're going to have another uh, segment of this uh, program because it's so important. Uh, medical care, no doubt, is a force multiplier. And in the U.S. military, it, it sure as hell is. Uh, next next uh, segment, we're going to talk to some medevac pilot guys uh, who, in my experience, definitely have balls. Uh, you know, how you feel when you're in a, med- in a military hospital. Um, I wasn't severely wounded, and when I was wounded and you start feeling sorry for yourself a little bit, you look into the bed to the left, look at the bed to the right, you see guys hurt much worse than you are, you, you kind of then buck up and uh, tell yourself to stop sniveling and drive on. And uh, there's always someone hurt worse than you are. It's probably why the German Army had levels of wound medals, because not all wounds are created equal. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we're going to talk to some, like I said earlier, some medics, some docs that cared for our wounded on the battlefield and off. And we're going to talk about some research and development, too, because we continue to improve constantly, just like our weaponry, on our medical care. So as Ranger Doug said, I also want to thank uh, Dave and Rick and Andy to be on the show tonight and uh, and thank those that are listening to our podcast tonight out there in the United States or somewhere else around the world uh, on uh, on our show, Veterans Radio Hour. So thanks again. God bless uh, all the way. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. No one left behind. father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667.
Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. <laughs>